So this evening I'd like to reflect on the theme of identity and non-self. I think one of the most vexing and troubling terms, for some people anyway, used in the Buddhist teaching is the, the teaching on non-self. And on one level, the idea of non-self, I understand, feels quite implausible. We wake up in the morning, and at least at this point in our life, if we're fortunate, we don't have to make a great deal of effort to remember who we are. This could change. We look in the mirror, and we don't expect to to find a stranger looking back at us. We have memories that stretch back in time of the many selves that we have been. Um, And we have thoughts about a future self, about who we will be. And we often have a very complex, uh, long story about who we are, our self story, about who we want to be, what we like and dislike about ourselves, what we judge, what we feel is the real me. Um, And we keep writing the story. Uh, The reality is that that we do think a lot about ourselves, (laughs) sometimes an embarrassing amount. Um, As the T-shirt says, it actually really is all about me. We think about our fears and our hopes and our wants and our disappointments. We think about our imperfections and our judgments. We think about our appearance and our body and our emotions. It's kind of like a full-time job. When we feel consumed or overwhelmed by the self-story that seems to have no end in sight, I think that the possibility of non-self sounds like it could be quite a blessed relief. But we might also find ourselves resisting and even fearing the idea of non-self. You know, you may have grown up in families, in communities, in societies, where your sense of self has been persistently under attack because of your ethnicity, because of your race, because of your sexuality, because of your gender, being dismissed or judged or made to be invisible. And it may feel that we've had to make heroic efforts and a lot of heartache to arrive where we are now, to establish a self that is actually not defined by how other people see or define us. It can take be a long journey to be visible and upright, to, to be possessed of an inner dignity and respect. And this is something very understandably we would be reluctant to let go of. I think for many women it has been a very long journey to stand on the ground of visibility, of poise, of self-reliance, So the proposal of non-self can even feel like an irrelevance. I think we we need to be clear that the very central and liberating teaching of non-self that the Buddha put forward 
was not speaking in any way about annihilating, homogenizing, or negating ourselves. The Buddha's primary concern, and I think it probably is our primary concern, is to discover the ways to bring distress and suffering and fear to an end and to cultivate a way of being where we can live as thriving and creative and dynamic relational women that we have the potential to be. To understand what it means to be free inwardly rather than imprisoned by a self-story and also by the past. The Buddha once said that if you were to choose a belief that there is either an eternal, solid, unchanging self or that there was no self, he said it would be better to choose the belief of there being an eternal, unchanging self because the belief in no self would be a surrender of ethics, a surrender of our moral compass. It would be a surrender or yielding of the need that there is for us to be responsibly engaged with the world. It would be a surrender of a sense of aspiration. So to be very clear, the Buddha did not teach no self. The Buddha taught non-self. And there is a world of difference in just that one letter. So the Buddha did not put the teaching of non-self forward as a belief, but as an inquiry to be investigated. What do we understand about self, this self that seems to be so central in our thoughts and in our lives? How does this sense of self come into being? How is this sense of self implicated in the very real distress and struggle we can experience. And is there a distinction between identity and self? Now, we are born into identities. These are things that we have often very, well, we don't have any choice over. We're born into genders. We're born into race. We're born into family values. We're born into certain bodies. We're born into certain social structures. Um, whether we're loved or valued or not, we are often much born into those identities. When I was in my family, it was, it was made very, very clear from as long as I can remember um, that I was treated very differently than my brother. And, you know, it was just an assumption. You know, my brother could get away with anything. He was a boy, you know. He was treated very differently than me and my sister as a girl, as girls. We inherit identities, and inevitably we inhabit the identities we inherit. And the identities we inherit establish for us a particular way of relating to the world around us. And many times our identities are thrust upon us based upon how others see us. When I lived as a very young woman in, in Asian monasteries for a time, 
quite frankly, I have to I have to credit Buddhism with making me a feminist. I actually have to con credit the monastic system for making me a feminist. Before the monastic system, I was not a feminist. I didn't even think about really being a woman very much when I was in my early twenties. That wasn't what I was in Asia for. But then when I went into Asian monasteries for a time. Um, it was made very clear that I was a woman. Whether I thought about it or not, other people were thinking about it. I was told as a woman about where I had to sit, how I had to dress, you know, when I could eat, how I had to behave, um, you know, and, and whether I got to eat at all. Um, and, you know, some of the more immature monks in the monastery, I had to have to say quite honestly you know, treated me as if I carried this intrinsic capacity and intent to undermine their virtue and liberation. <laughs> Hadn't occurred to me. <laughs> Until I was told that that was who I was as a woman. And this was all based on, on gender, it was all based on appearance, all based on body. Identities are thrust upon us by other people's stories about us. And how people see us is how people treat us. I think that's very important. How we see other people is how we treat them. We place people in relationship to us, to what they mean to us. We are placed in relationship to other people by what we mean to them. And what we mean to them is determined, often determines whether we are valued or whether we are dismissed, whether we are affirmed or whether we are rejected. Now some facets of identity we will carry with us through our lives. Some facets of identi our identities we will question. Some facets of our identities we will learn from. Some facets of our identities we may very well internalize and believe in and struggle with. But I think what we do see is, as when awareness comes into the picture and confidence comes into the picture and encouragement comes into the picture, that identity really is a kind of work in progress. Identity is something that is evolving, that is changing through our lives, through our life experience, through our successes, through our failures, through our relationships, through the roles we adopt, through discernment. Identities evolve through emotional experiences of being loved or rejected, of feeling safe or threatened. But I think we can say that identity is something that is emergent. It is shape-changing. However, it seems to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong in this, but it seems to me that much of our self-story gets built upon identity. Hmm? That identity plays probably the primary role in shaping our self-story, the story we and others tell about who we are. And the self-story shapes how we live, the choices we make, what we think to be possible for ourselves, the aspirations we hold, the things we avoid, 
the way that we navigate through life. There's a book I'm very fond of called Into the Silent Land, written by Paul Brooks. He's a neuropsychiatrist. And he tells this very touching story in this book of the time when he was uh, a young and raw trainee in his profession. And he was given the case of a a 17-year-old boy who'd fallen down a lift shaft, uh, an elevator shaft, and was left with a catastrophic brain injury. He was deprived of speech and mobility, and he was left primarily through the day, grunting, growling, contorted, his limbs twisted, and an ever-present rage. And Paul Brock said that as a new trainee, he found himself pitying the young man, but he was also revulsed, thinking there was really nothing left of a self in the teenager, wondering why they even kept him alive. And one day he was there when the boy's mother came to visit and watched as she cradled his broken head, saw how the boy's rage subsided, how his body stilled and could be cradled. And Pobots described the appalling revelation that came to him, that he could see a fellow human being as being less than a person. He saw this as his own failure of empathy. What he saw was that the whole of this young man was greater than the sum of his parts. Paul Brooks goes on to say, he says, the self is a story and it is not us telling the story. It is really the story telling us who we are. Now, Sometimes I think in meditative instructions, you know, we hear a lot about stepping out of the story and stepping out of the narrative. And of course, there's tremendous value in learning how to do this and how not to be consumed by the story and and not to be constantly telling and retelling. Very often the same story, isn't it? Um, But it's also not about... It's not about feeling this command to get rid of the story, but to understand and learn from it and how the story of who we are is manifesting just now and if it's helpful or if it's unhelpful, whether it leads to affliction or whether it leads to the end of affliction. Does the story we tell ourselves right now about who we are Does it lead towards freedom or does it lead away from freedom? And I I think these are very real questions um, to to ask of ourselves moment to moment. And in examining the story of self, I think one thing that becomes very clear is that the self is an uncertainty. Self is an uncertainty. And although we can find ourselves holding beliefs about who we are that feel very fixed and very historical, in a way, when we look at the self quite carefully, 
It's kind of like a chameleon, isn't it? Keeps changing shape. Isn't that interesting? Keeps changing shape. Depending on circumstances, on conditions, depending on how we interface with other selves, depending on what we identify with in our bodies, our minds, our lives. In any moment, we actually truly don't know what self is going to appear. It could, you know, depending on what we eat for lunch. <laughs> you know, depending on whether we have to wait in line for the bathroom, you know. Depending on whether, you know, the sun shines or not. I mean, it seems like the most small little things in life just contribute to this. Suddenly, we've got a different self. You know, when you wake up in the morning, you hardly even know what self you're going to wake up with, do you? <laughs> Is it a grumpy self, happy self, you know, sad self, you know, motivated self, depressed self, despairing self? You hardly even know, you know. But you open your eyes, it just jumps in real quick, doesn't it? Oh, that's the self of the morning, you know, breakfast food, you know. You hardly know right now what self you're going to go to bed with. You know, depending on what happens between now and bedtime. You know, whether they run out of your favorite tea or, you know, you know the, the world of myself, you know, my happy self could just crumble in a moment, you know, depending on whether I forgot where I put my slippers. You know, it's, it's quite amazing. I actually think it's really good news to think that I am an uncertainty. I think, I think that's terrific news, isn't it? That there's nothing very fixed here. You know? I, I think it's, it's such a big relief. I mean, imagine if you wake up in the morning with a grumpy self and that was a life sentence. <laughs> you know, isn't it good news that, you know, that this is a chameleon? You know, this is a shape changer. Because it means there's a possibility of transformation. It means that we can really begin to sense that there's, there's nothing fixed or eternal about who we believe ourselves to be. The other understanding that becomes clear is that the self of the moment is really built upon seizing, upon fragments of experience. As Paul Brooks described in that story of the young man. That we seize upon anger or fear or we seize upon some event in the body. And that becomes who we are if we clench around moments of success or failure. That becomes who we are if we clench around loss or judgment. That we becomes who we are. But we forget the who, the who we are is much greater than the sum of our parts much greater than the sum of our parts. And I think the question we are left with really is that can there be identity without identification? Because identification is what happens when fragments of experience are, mis are seized upon and mistaken to be the whole. Identification imprisons. It clenches, it reifies all that we judge or reject in ourselves. Whereas identity, without identification, can be fluid, responsive, can be our means of meaningful communication with the world around us. 
Identity can be the source of, of creativity, the embodiment of all that we value. No matter how awakened we are, we still need to find a way to navigate through this life and to live a life meaningfully and purposefully and to make a difference. And quite frankly, you're not going to do this as some erased blank piece of paper. There's a wonderful quote that says, you know, all that we are now is a result of all that we were. And all that we will be in the next moment, in the future, will be the result of all that we are now. Now, self, the story, the self-idea, the self-image, is something that gets constructed around identity. It almost provides the story that is built around identity. And that story of self is not emotionally neutral. You know, if you were born into a family or a society where you were loved and encouraged and respected, yourself of the moment, born of that identity, would probably look very, very different than if you were born into a family or community or society where you were neglected, where you were disdained, where you were treated harshly. I know when I was a young girl in my generation, when I was, you know, in my teens or no, and before that, you know, there were certain expectations around being a young girl in, in my family and, and, you know, I think my society more at large for girls like me, you know, you were actually supposed to be um, pretty obedient. You were actually supposed to not expect too much. You were supposed to be pretty quiet. You know, you were supposed to not aspire greatly. You know, and I remember as, as a young girl, I, I, I didn't find school very difficult, so it ended up that I skipped two years of primary school. That didn't mean I went to high school as an 11-year-old with 13-year-olds, which I have to tell you was not good news. Um, but I remember, you know, my family kind of saying, you know, don't let anyone know. You know, pretend you're older than you are. You know, you're not supposed to be that smart. You know, you're not supposed to be that bright. And, you know, and then, you know, in my generation, you know, by the time I was in my 20s, having gone from this expected identity of being, you know, muted and quiet and obedient, by the time I was in, tw- in my 20s, I was supposed to be empowered, you know, I was supposed to be, you know, making waves, you know, I was supposed to be, real, you know, bringing about social change, you know, I was supposed to be, you know, I was like, what happened in the middle, you know? <laughs> Like, what happened? I didn't get any coaching for this, you know? My coaching was all about being quiet and obedient, and suddenly I was supposed to be this person, you know? That was quite troubling for me, you know, because we didn't get any coaching, you know? There was just suddenly this, this sudden shift about who you were supposed to be as a girl and who you were supposed to be as a young woman. Where were you supposed to get all that stuff from? You know, being confident and, you know, empowered and striding forth into changing the world. What we see is that our idea of self is often shaped around many of the emotional tendencies and habits 
that have been built up in our life through how others see us, how we've learned to see ourselves, what we actually see that our, then our sense of self actually generates certain tendencies and emotional habits. Um, born of life experience. You know, we learn to fear. You know, we learn to judge. We learn to worry. We learn to be angry. We learn to be depressed. And we practice and repeat and those tendencies and inclinations and patterns until they're absorbed into our self-construct. And they become who we are. You know, very, so often, you know, when, when we have groups, you probably notice this yourself, how, you know, the self-definitions come marching forward, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm an anxious person, you know. Just, you know, I'm, now I'm an extrovert. You know, I, I'm, I'm an introvert. You know? it, how the, the, self, you know, the self-descriptions come marching forward. The Buddha says, what we frequently think about and dwell upon, to this does our mind incline. What we frequently think about and dwell upon, to this does our mind incline. And what we feed will grow. Uh, someone sent me this video recently that I've shared with these dear people, women of this young boy, I don't know how old he is, he's about eight or nine years old, I, I think he comes from India, and, and he starts this video, he's teaching, you know, he says, you know, what do you practice, you know, and, and then he says, what do you practice, and, and he says, if you, if you practice angry, you will be very, very good at it. You know, you'll be so good at it, you will find fault everywhere. You will sit on an airplane and you will envy the person in the seat across you and you will think how unfair the airlines is to you. He says, if you practice worrying, you will get very, very good about it. You will worry about the buffalo you do not have. <laughs> and I, that's amazing. We will worry about the buffalo we do not have. What we feed will grow. We see this in ourselves. You know, if we worry a lot, we become an anxious person. If I practice aversion a lot, my mind will incline towards aversion. I will become an irritable person. I'm not pretending to be an irritable person. I will become an irritable, impatient person. And if we practice joy and appreciation, these two will grow. Now the, the Buddha speaks about identities to be cultivated and identities not to be cultivated. I found this a really interesting discourse about identities to be cultivated and identities not to be cultivated. He says to, not to cultivate identities that lead to unwholesome states to increase and wholesome states to diminish. These identities should not be cultivated. The ones that lead to unwholesome states to increase and wholesome states to diminish. He says, but cultivate identities that lead to unwholesome states diminishing and wholesome states increasing. That these are the identities to be cultivated. You get that? This is such an interesting discussion. Um, when we adopt identities that are prone to suffering, okay, think about the identities that are prone to suffering. You know, I'm not good enough, I'm imperfect, you know, I'm a failure, uh, I'm anxious. Think about the identities that are prone to suffering. 
When we adopt identities that are prone to suffering, unwholesome states flourish. And wholesome states diminish. Think about this. When we identify ourselves as being kind of an aversive person, there's no room for kindness in there. If we identify with fear, there's very little room for compassion in there. If we identify with a sense of deficiency or insufficiency, there's no room for for joy or appreciation in there. When we cultivate identities that are free from affliction, unwholesome states fade and wholesome states flourish. That's interesting. Identities, so he's not talking about no identity. He's talking about identities that are rooted in generosity and kindness and compassion, in empathy and understanding. Wholesome states flourish. Now, I think it's very, very good just to to reflect that wholesome and unwholesome, I know these are words that we don't use in English that much or they have weird associations. I used to think of Pollyanna and wholesome and some of you are too young for Pollyanna. But um, uh, we'll explain that one later. But, But wholesome and unwholesome is not about good and bad, right or wrong. It's, it's about developing the sensitivity and awareness of knowing inwardly what leads to distress and what leads to the end of distress. And it's not about seeking self-improvement or perfection. It's about seeking freedom. And it's about process. You know, It's recognizing that we are always practicing and cultivating something in every moment, whether consciously or unconsciously. And this is about caring for cultivating that which leads to our well-being, that leads us to thrive and flourish. So what are unwholesome states? Now, the Buddha, I, think I found this, this guy a genius. Yeah. He, he, he undertook this experiment that, quite frankly, I could live 200 years and I would never think to do this. The thought would just not occur to me. So he decided he was going to undertake this experiment um, and, and he was going to look at his own mind, his moods, his thoughts, his emotions, and his intentions, and he was going to ask of them a few simple questions. Of every thought, every mood, every emotion, every atten- intention, he was going to ask of them a few simple questions. Does this thought, does this mood, does this emotion, this intention, lead to my affliction or the affliction of others? Or does it lead to the end of my affliction and the end of affliction for others? Does this thought, this mood, this emotion, this intention, does it obstruct understanding? Or does it lead to a deepening in understanding? Does this thought, this mood, this emotion, intention, does this lead towards freedom or does it lead away from freedom? Isn't that amazing? Would you ever have had that thought? <laughs> I never would have had that thought. I mean, this is a really interesting experiment to try on yourself. This is really worthwhile. Hmm? 
It's really worthwhile because it's not about what we get rid of or what we have or what we become. It's about asking those questions, you know, and being illuminated inwardly by the understandings that come for ourselves. Hmm? Ask these questions of our judgment. Ask these questions of our intentions of generosity. Ask these questions of our aversion. Ask these questions of our kindness. Ask these questions of our harshness or compassion, our agitation or our calm. This could only ever be really a present moment reflection. None of us can undo our histories. And our histories are contributors to our sense of who we are in this moment. We can only sense what is shaping the self of the moment, through what we are cultivating and practicing. And our self of the moment does indeed become our world of the moment. We ask ourselves, what does it mean actually to find freedom within our stories, within our identities? Certainly not to try and erase our identities, but to learn how to release ourselves from distress the distress that is born of identification. This is, I think, the deepest way that we care for our well-being and the well-being of all. We ask ourselves, do we find happiness? Do we find peace in rage, in resistance, in endless wanting, in discontent, in shame, in blame? Do we find happiness or peace here? I think not. These are the ways that we injure ourselves. And these are also the places where we learn to cease inflicting injury on ourselves. Do we find happiness and peace in kindness, in generosity, in dignity, in stillness, in empathy, in receptivity? I think so. Life is constantly teaching us about what enriches us, what frees us, and about what imprisons us. And in a very real way, the path that we choose to follow is in our hands. We may have very long histories of being told who we are. We may may have very long histories in, in practicing fear and judgment and aversion. It's not easy to grow out of those histories. Yet those histories actually can end in a very real way, in a moment of clear awareness, of really choosing what we believe in, choosing what we cultivate. It doesn't mean that those histories don't arise again. Of course they do. They have so, they're so long. But every time they arise again, they just become a little bit more transparent, not where we make our home. Many Women, many people come to this path because of pain, of trying to find ways to navigate their way through loss and disappointment and injury and sorrow that are woven into every human life and trying to find a meaningful peace that's not dependent on the world of conditions that we can't control or predict. Many people come to find an inner peace and freedom And that's always been the heart of this path. I read this story recently about 
Meryl Streep. You know who Meryl Streep is? The actress. There's a story about Meryl Streep, and she, she was when she was receiving a Golden Globe Award for her lifetime of acting, and afterwards she was speaking to a, a, her friend and saying that she didn't know what to do with the despair she was feeling about what was happening in her country and what was happening in the world. And her friend advised her, take your broken heart and turn it into art. Take your broken heart and turn it into art. And I, I thought this was such an incredible thing to say. But then I thought, well, you know, in a sense, this is also the art of this practice. Deeply sensing the cries of the world, the places in ourselves and in the world that despair, that are broken, that are sad within, and learn how they can be transformed. As much as this teaching emphasizes turning towards and embracing and understanding distress, it equally emphasizes the profound potential that each one of us have to know remarkable depths of stillness and compassion and peace and freedom. And we are really asked to have confidence in those, the potential we have to touch the world with those qualities, to be women of dignity and poise and fearlessness and spaciousness. Years, for some years after the Buddha's death, he was primarily remembered through the images of footprints in the sand. Footprints in the sand. Someone remembered as someone who, who walked lightly through this world, who was free from affliction, who embodied compassion, the compassion and freedom that he taught. Did the Buddha have regrets and sorrows and conflicts and disappointments in his life? No doubt he did. And yet in the midst of all of this, he found a way not to be defined by affliction. Quite a long time later, after the Buddha's death, he was portrayed in these images and statues that we have now. Almost as someone who was, who was solid, who was who was uh, fixed. And I, I see this, you know, I, I was thinking about this, and I, I see it almost as a kind of visual process of turning someone who is so fluid and relational, dynamic, alive, into something solid and fixed and static. And I, I think this is something like a process we can trace in ourselves. How do we turn from being a fluid, alive, responsive being into a self that is static and frozen and solid. Identity is, is not a problem. It is how we communicate and interface with the world. It is through identity that we actually find embodiment of all that we value, all that we care about, all that is wholesome, The body with everything that the body can experience is not a problem. The mind, the emotions that we feel, it's not a problem to be overcome. 
distress, affliction, these are processes that are trackable. The outcome of contractedness is to turn ourselves into statues. I think the outcome of contractedness is to mistake the fragments we see in ourselves as be the whole of who we are, of someone solid, and it is always painful. This process of clenching, of contracting, of identifying, you know, it's, it's not a process that's predetermined. Um, it's not inevitable. And then when this process of turning ourselves into a statue is really touched with curiosity and awareness, with compassion, sensitivity, it is transformed. We see the way that identification really turns process into state and verbs into nouns. And we learn again and again in our practice to return to process, to step out of the cycles of, of creating what seems to be an endless me. And what is this me that is created? You know, what happens when you say your name to yourself? When I say I or I am? You know, when we just say that inwardly, where does it land? Does it land in the body? Oh, I'm the body. You know, does it land in a mood? I'm, I'm bored or I, I'm depressed or I'm excited. You know, does it land in, in a description? And, you know, you look at if you probe more deeply, can you find a self that is not defined by identification? Now, we can't, by willpower, let go of the I am. We can't bring identification to an end through shouting at ourselves. We can't use concentration as a mechanism of dissolving self. We can't command ourselves to wake up. But we can quite consciously cultivate the conditions that support non-selfing. You know, there is never, ever too much kindness or generosity, and there's often too little. There's never too much patience and compassion, often too little. There's never too much spaciousness and stillness, often too li little. And these are the conditions that support non-selfing. We give birth to our present and to our future through what is cultivated just now, what we frequently think about and dwell upon. To this does our mind incline. And in the teaching of establishing mindfulness, whether sitting or standing, whether walking or lying down, whether coming or going, whether reaching or, pla or placing, the Buddha says, here we establish this present moment recollection where there is a freedom from identification, where we're not defined by history, where we create in ourselves. And he says, this is the most noble way of abiding in this world. I want to end with a, a poem by Roshani Rea. She says, there is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which comes the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond our grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depths 
emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable while learning, unbreakable and whole, while learning to sing. Okay, so we just a moment quietly together. <clears throat> Thank you for your attention. So we have a a walking period now and then come back for the last group sit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.